I must be adjusting to temperatures over here. I've taken off my coat. <laughs> so we're, as uh, Manny said, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, it would be good to turn that up once I find mine. There we go. All right. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you again that you speak to us in your word and we ask that you'll open our hearts and minds to it. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, warnings. We receive lots of warnings in the course of our life, don't we? In many different ways, different circumstances. During the pandemic, we had warnings of all manner, didn't we, about the virus spreading. And so there were lots of signs talking about social distancing, and all those little circles on the floors when you go to shops and all the rest of it. And, and then, of course, there were signs about good habits, like making sure you cleansed your hands and all that. I was in the city at the beginning of last week, and there were still lots of signs like that around. And uh, although some of the um, sort of, you know, when you went to wash your hands didn't work. <laughs> they must have got tired of it. But we also come across signs warning us of danger, don't we? Around here in this sort of part of the world, there'll be signs near cliffs, won't there? Or at least I hope so. Uh, and then on the freeway, of course, you see those wonderful saying, wrong way, go back. And I think, well, if you got to that point, it's almost impossible to go back. Um, so we encounter those sort of signs. And generally speaking, they're wanting to save us from some potential danger or disaster. And for that, we appreciate that and thankful for that. Now... In today's reading, we come to the first warning that occurs in the book of Hebrews. So what I want to do to begin with is to sort of, in a sense, take a step back and look at the big picture of the role of warnings in the book. Remember that the writer to Hebrews is wanting to encourage his Christian friends, his readers, to stop what appears to be a drift away from Christian, that is new covenant, uh, faith and practice. And he seeks to do that in a number of ways. He wants to teach in depth about the superior Christ, the Son of God, the faithful high priest, the one who fulfills all of God's Old Testament promises, the final word of revelation of God. But he also does it through warnings, warnings of how dangerous it is to reject God and the Christ that he sent. And so in the light of those two things, he urges his readers to hold fast to the superior Christ and that will hopefully stop them drifting. And so scattered throughout the book of Hebrews are five warnings that come in some fairly key passages. first one's here in chapter 2. The next one's tied up in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Then a bit of chapter 5 and chapter 6, then chapter 10 and chapter 12. And the warnings overall are really simply aimed at encouraging church members, encouraging the Christians that he's writing to, to persevere, to persevere in true faith and so avoid the sin of apostasy. Yet as the war author warns, he also distinguishes between genuine faith and false faith. The genuine faith is marked by perseverance. It'll hang in there to the end. 
whereas false faith is characterised by its temporary nature. It just doesn't last. And that distinction comes out in a few places. So, for example, in Hebrews 3, 6, we read, We are God's house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So if church members and any of you that claim to be Christian, if they persevere in faith to the end, then that shows that they're already true members of God's family. Or again, later on in chapter 3, we read, We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firm to the end. So if Christians hold onto their confidence, it reveals the truth. That is the truth they're already sharers in Christ, not simply that they'll share in him on the last day. So a Christian's perseverance is really evidence of what's occurred in the past. And hence perseverance is an essential ingredient of what it means to be Christian, to be a partaker of Christ. You may recall the parable of the four soils or often called the parable of the sower in Mark 4, for example, and how the sower scatters the seed and some falls on rocky ground, some amongst the thorns and there's some sort of initial growth. It's like it appears to be a promise of a good crop to come but it doesn't yield a crop. It has signs of life yet doesn't persevere. In other words, this type of spiritual life is transitory. It is not genuine faith. So the warnings really are there to spotlight in the whole book the sin threatening the Christian community the author cares so deeply about. And this threatening sin isn't some temporary backsliding, but rather the irreversible apostasy of moving away from the living God. Hebrews describes apostasy as the complete rejection of Christian faith, seemingly once held and professed. It's sinning against the triune God because apostasy is a persistent and culpable refusal to obey the living God who speaks in his Son and warns us from heaven. Apostasy treats Jesus with utter contempt, in a sense crucifying him again and so rejecting his once for all atoning sacrifice for sin. But apostasy also arrogantly insults God's gracious spirit through whom Christ offered himself to God, the spirit who applies the definitive forgiveness of sins to believers. But of course apostasy Apostasy isn't to be confused with other sins and weaknesses of Christians. These have been wonderfully toned for through the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus and his high priestly ministry. But there's no provision for apostasy. For this offence is a total rejection of everything that's distinctively Christian. A defiant rejection maintained right to the very end. Hence, the person who commits apostasy can never have been an authentic Christian. He or she could never have been a Christian, whatever their initial response may have appeared to be. Because genuine faith is marked by perseverance, enduring to the end. A perseverance that runs the race set before Christians 
with eyes fixed on Jesus, as the author will talk about in chapter 12. So let's uh, work through these four verses <coughs> in chapter 2. <coughs> the author begins with the key to his warning in, in verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And whenever we come across <coughs> a therefore, uh, we always need to ask what it is there for, isn't it? And the therefore here takes us back to what's previously occurred. <coughs> back in the passage from verse 5 to 14 of chapter 1. In those verses we read of God addressing his son, showing his superiority over angels. Why? Because they, in fact, worship Jesus. And the role of angels is to serve saved humans. So because the son is superior to the angels... He is, in a sense, the divine king ruling over everything. Why would anyone want to drift back to a revelation mediated by angels? That is the Mosaic law. So as chapter 2 begins, we're taken from the grandeur of the heavenly scene. Back to earth. Back to the people who are in danger of drifting away. So the appeal to pay closer attention to the message, the message of the gospel, is firmly grounded, grounded in the superior son who is the final authoritative word of God. Now this urgent appeal arises because of the author's loving concern for his readers. He just doesn't want them to drift Drift like a sort of, you know, a ring sort of slipping off your finger, you know, when it gets a bit wet. That slow sort of drift down. Or like a boat that loses its anchor and just moves out to sea. Later on, the author will urge people to really hold fast to their hope without wavering, without drifting, in other words. Since Jesus is the divine son and the Davidic king, the one who is greater than the angels, and because he's cleansed the believers, the readers from their sins, then the reader is saying to those first, the writer is saying to those first readers, stand firm. Stand firm in what you have heard. And that's the same challenge for us today, to stand firm in what we have heard in the gospel. This is a very important warning that occurs this, at this point in the book. For the readers face the danger of <clears throat> ceasing to pay attention to the son's authoritative word and so slipping away from the truth. And so as verse 2 begins, <clears throat> and um, begins with a for or a since supplying the reason, since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. See, the author is referring to the angels' role in the giving of the Mosaic law. Though it's not talked about in Exodus 20, it's referred to in other parts of the scriptures in Deuteronomy 33, Acts 7, Galatians 3 and so on. So if the law, <clears throat> with its go-between angels, was binding 
and those who disobeyed its commands were punished, as we can read about in Exodus 21, 22, Leviticus 26, uh, Deuteronomy 27, 28, and so on. Then, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If people were punished for rejecting God's Old Testament law, then there will even be a greater punishment for rejecting God's Son and his final word. You see, the readers won't escape, and that word escape is used a bit like a bookend because it comes up in the warning in chapter 12, the last warning. And the word in uh, most of the other contexts in the New Testament is used in relationship to the final end-time judgment. So he's saying readers won't escape if they turn away from such a great salvation. And why is it a great salvation? Because it's God's final words spoken by his son, as chapter 1 reminds us. In other words, this is the word coming from the perfect prophet, fulfilling all of the prophetic role of the Old Testament. But secondly, it's great because Jesus' sacrifice cleanses us from sin once for all. Highlighted in chapter 1, again in chapter 9, he is the perfect high priest that fulfills all of the priestly duties from the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus sits at God's right hand, ruling over everything. Chapter 1 is highlighted, chapter 8 will highlight that. He is the perfect king, the one who fulfills all of the promises associated with David in the Old Testament. He is prophet, priest and king. So those who repudiate such a salvation will certainly face judgment. In the Old Testament, the punishments, in a sense, were earthly and so Israel is taken off into exile in Babylon. But the revelation through the Son is heavenly, as chapter 12 talks about. So those who reject him will receive a final and eternal punishment with no possibility of an exit strategy. But the warning, though real, is also conditional, for it says, if you neglect such a great salvation, then this is what will take place. So the author is providing the warning, the real warning, to prevent the drift, that gradual drift away from holding onto faith in Jesus, the gradual drift as they give in to subtle pressures leading to faith, having no influence over their lives. And the most likely possibility for these folk is persecution and hence wanting to retreat into Judaism which would offer some protection. But of course, we face those same subtle temptations, don't we? To sort of backpedal a little bit on our Christian faith. And we've got a world around us at the moment that's really pressuring us in that way, isn't it? All the stuff about the world pride stuff and all of that, pressuring us to accept a wrong view of sexuality. But there's a whole range of things that are pressuring us, isn't it? Sometimes it's there in our jobs where we are pressured to just compromise the truth a little bit for the sake of 
the employment. I had a friend who was a lawyer and he uh, was told that he always had to go out of the room to finalise the negotiation. But of course, the line was, I've got to ring so-and-so. But nobody actually rang anybody. And so he said to his employers, you, if I'm going to say that, you, I've got to ring you. I can't lie because I'm a Christian. Ultimately, he lost his job because of that. But there are consequences when we stand up for being Christ. So the author in Hebrews is warning these people, but it's a warning for us as well, that we've got to hold firm, we've got to keep the anchor and not lose it. And then the final bit of the, this little passage unpacks why it's so foolish to neglect the salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author is reminding his readers here of how the gospel declares and effects such a great salvation. So it's an authoritative word that was first spoken by the Lord, that is by Jesus himself, the son through whom God has spoken his final word, a word that we know is centred in the kingdom of God. God's final word speaks of the creator and sustainer of the world, the heir of all things, the one who entered into history revealing himself to humans through word and deed. Now the gospel word of Jesus Christ was also confirmed to the readers by eyewitnesses, folk who had heard and seen Jesus in the flesh. In other words, we're being told here that the readers are really second generation believers. They weren't there in Palestine trooping around with Jesus. But it's much the same as us, isn't it? We're not first-generation believers because we weren't there physically with Jesus. We've come to know Jesus, for, in most of the cases, through someone sharing the gospel with us, as with the folk that the author of Hebrews is writing to. But the author here is sort of like using legal language because he's saying that the salvation announced by Jesus has been established beyond doubt. See, if believers are to stake their lives on the gospel, then they must be assured of its reliability and trustworthiness. And though the author and the readers weren't eyewitnesses, they can be certain of the Lord's message because it's been corroborated by those who heard Jesus. And he keeps piling on this corroboration, isn't it? He writes here of God also bearing, in a sense, legal witness to the certainty of the gospel message in Jesus. How? By God verifying the truth of the gospel through miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that was certainly observed in Jesus' ministry. And remember that Pentecost sermon highlights that in Acts 2. And seen in some ways in the ministry of the apostles from Pentecost onwards. The Bible usually speaks of signs and wonders when God's great redemptive acts are on view, such as the Exodus because there's mainly key periods when signs and wonders really occur and they're around Revelation. 
So the Exodus being one of those and of course Jesus' time being another in particular. Signs and wonders are God's way of authenticating his actions. They assure the readers of the gospel events that uh, have been proclaimed to them that they are really part and parcel of God's um, gracious act of salvation. When the term miracle is used, it's a more general expression normally describing great acts of power and so they're evidence of the presence of the kingdom. And then the final confirming act of God in verse 4 is the gifts of the Spirit as they also accredit the revelation given by God. And the author doesn't really go into talk about exactly what he means by that but we know from other parts of the Bible what is in mind. <clears throat> so the warning passages in Hebrews are serious and they require careful consideration and reflection. Remember that the purpose of the warnings isn't to rob people of hope but rather to steer away from danger in order to preserve us. They encourage us to persevere in the faith so we'll inherit the hope God's promised in the gospel. By focusing on the superior Christ and his great salvation, then the warnings remind us of three great truths. You see, it reminds us about the trustworthiness of the gospel. Paul, Paul in Romans talks about it as the power of God under salvation. If we believe that, we need to rely on it. But the warnings also remind us about God's word is a, a pledge of his presence. And so the challenge is to immerse ourselves in God's word. You know, like taking a bath and going right down under the water. To immerse yourself in God's word. And then finally, of course, the warnings remind us of the foolishness of losing our grip on the faith. And so we need to keep pressing on. That's the challenge of it. That's part of the reason we meet together, isn't it? To encourage one another to press on. And so that, that's what we need to do with one another. To encourage one another to persevere as Christians in the midst of the world we live in. To maintain a firm hold on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so resist the temptations, the pressures to drift away. May God so strengthen us. Amen.